Hello and welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Orla Director of Government Affairs. Joining me today from the Orla team is Lori Little, Director of Communications. Welcome, Lori. Thanks, Greg. So, Lori, how was your weekend? Ah, it was great. Enjoying this weather, this hot weather still. Hot weather. I was glad it wasn't as hot because I actually participated in a three-on-three basketball tournament down in Salem, Hoopla. They had their uh, 20th year. And uh, it was interesting because while we were there, uh, I noticed that in part it was supported by uh, transient occupancy tax dollars. I'm assuming a grant from probably the uh, Cultural and Tourism Advisory Board there in Salem, of which I used to sit on. But um, it's a great use, I think, of the TOT dollars because people come from all over the Northwest to participate. Uh, last year they had almost 1,000 teams uh, wow. at this tournament. So it's a lot of folks coming in from out of town and uh, playing some basketball, including myself, although I was actually in town. Well, now, do you do you qualify for that? As a basketball player, absolutely not. No. In fact, uh, we have four players because you can always have a sub. Uh, And of the four, uh, three of us are football players, my two oldest boys, Matthew and Connor. And then we brought in a ringer, uh, my nephew, Dane, from Southern California, who's a a star basketball player. Um, But despite that, uh, we were only able to take one out of the four games this weekend. So uh, but we had fun. And, and we participated, well, right? Yeah, that's the important part. Yeah, we didn't get a participation ribbon, but we still had fun. <laughs> so, And speaking of fun, uh, we have our convention coming up uh, Sunday, September 30th, and Monday, October 1st. Yeah, pretty excited about that because we got a great lineup of uh, educational programs, keynote speakers on a ton of topics that are really timely right now. So, yeah, I, I definitely hope people... Go to our website and check that out to see what's uh, what's on schedule. And it's going to be in Tigard this year. So draws from the greater Portland metro area. And yeah. Well, it's close for anybody, really, right? Yeah. It's uh, not too far from Salem, uh, not too far from Eugene or the coast. But uh, it'll be at the Embassy Suites by Hilton Portland at Washington Square, as you mentioned. Um, and, of course, we want to give a big shout-out and a thank you to Liberty Mutual Insurance, who are is our presenting sponsor for the 2018 Orla Convention. Um, and... Lori, if folks want to get registered for that, can they go to the website? Yes, they can. And what is our website? It is oregonrla.org slash convention. All right. And as you mentioned, I think there's going to be a lot of great information, uh, a lot of uh, great speakers that are coming, educational opportunities for folks. And of course, as always, it's a really fun time and a great place to network with folks in the industry. Yes, definitely. Well, today we have a great interview. We're going to get into cease and desist letters, which probably doesn't sound like a very interesting or exciting topic, but I promise you it will get interesting and exciting. And we've got uh, Alicia Bell and Carla Quisenberry of Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn. But first, we want to make sure that you are getting the most out of your membership. And to help you do that, we like to highlight a benefit you may or may not be aware of. Did you know Members get discounts with First Data Card Processing. So Orla members can receive up to $500 for new merchant accounts, low rates that don't change, and more. First Data has helped millions of businesses like yours. And to get more information, you can visit OregonRLA.org slash First Data. And now I'm very excited to introduce our guests, Alicia Bell, partner with Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn and Carla Quisenberry, counsel with Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn. Welcome to Boiled Down. Thank you. Appreciate you guys being here today. We are going to be talking about cease and desist letters, Correct. a topic I'm pretty sure a lot of our members don't have a lot of knowledge on. So I'm glad you guys are here. 
so that we can talk about this because we always like to get our members the best information about the things that they may unexpectedly have to deal with. Um, so let's start with the most basic. What is a cease and desist letter? Well, it's um, basically when you receive a cease and desist letter, it's a legal warning to you uh, to stop doing something. Typically, the letter will say something like, I own this intellectual property and you're infringing on this intellectual property and you need to stop using that intellectual property. That's the basic outline of a cease and desist letter. Okay. And so we had, uh, I think maybe a recent example of this in the Portland area. There was a burger, uh, restaurant that was being accused of using very similar burger recipes or, you know, toppings, I think it was, uh, from another burger restaurant. And so there was mm -hmm. a little bit of that. Is that kind of a typical cease and desist letter situation? Yeah. So it can cover, uh, any one of the more typical areas of intellectual property. So we're talking about trademarks is very common, uh, copyright, uh, patents and trade secret. So it, it generally, uh, trademarks is more common, mm -hmm. but uh, it can cover any one of those. So if I took the In-N-Out Burger logo, for example, exactly. and flipped the colors and called it Out and In Burger, then that would probably be a, a situation where they would... Yes. You'd <laughs> okay. get probably a not-so-friendly letter from them. <laughs> so that's, a, that's an obvious one, I guess. What are maybe some of the less obvious ones that, that you've either seen or heard or read about in some of the publications? Are there examples of, of something that maybe was, was unintentional, but, um, and again, I, I guess the, the example that I can think of is I know there was a story recently in a local paper about a, um, I think it was a tea shop and they had a very mm -hmm. specific look with, you know, kind of white walls and, and kind of the furniture looked a certain way. Another tea shop opened up about a block away with essentially the same look. Now, there was a claim that they stole the look and somebody else said, no, that's kind of what tea shops look like. Is that, you know, that yeah. kind of an ambiance. So are there are there examples of, of that? And, and in that case, I mean, how do you how do you handle? Well, uh, a local example, I think that we're all pretty familiar with is um, uh, what was formerly uh, Olympic provisions mm -hmm. is now Olympia provisions. Right. And we were not involved in this matter at all. But um, uh the Olympic Committee owns the trademark for the Olympics. Okay. And at the Olympics, they also serve food. So I'm I'm guessing that they have a trademark registration in the U.S. for the Olympics for food. Okay. And um and I'm assuming that now Olympia Provisions got a letter from this Olympic Committee saying stop use the stop using the term Olympic. Okay. And so they're now Olympia provisions. So when it comes to a word, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that can, that's one of those things, I guess, that, and again, you guys are the experts, but does it matter how much time, energy, effort, money you've put into promoting something like that? Or is it enough just to say, you know, look, I, I came up with this word, you know, 15 years ago. I haven't really used it, but it's my word. And now I see somebody making a lot of money selling food. I, I mean. It's a good question. So, um, when we're talking about trademark rights, which is what we're talking about here, you actually do have to be using it in commerce, in the marketplace to sell particular goods or services in order to have trademark rights in that word. But those trademark rights are created in whoever the first person is to do that. Okay. So if you had an idea and it was a great idea for a trademark, but you never used it, 
And someone else came along 10 years later and started using it for the same services or goods you were going to use it for. You've kind of lost your chance. <laughs> Whoever used it first is going to have those rights. You missed it. Yeah, you missed it. Okay. So when it comes to recipes, and obviously this is of particular interest to our restaurant members, I mean, obviously there are infinite numbers of ways that you can create food, but to a certain extent, I mean, obviously you're going to have some overlap, like I said, with burgers, for example, right? I mean, a lot of places will put a fried egg and bacon on a burger and call it a breakfast burger, for example. So, how, yeah, right? Sorry, <laughs> well, sorry, we don't have those here. So, well, what, you do. You do hear the example of the secret sauce. Okay, and there you have it in the name. It's a secret, and so uh, technically, it's a trade secret. And uh, the scenario where that might come up is if you had a former employee leave your restaurant, go to a second restaurant, or open his or her own restaurant with the same or, or a very similar sauce, mm-hmm. um, that would be trade secret or uh, might be trade secret um, misappropriation. Okay. And the same thing if you had a, like a partner or somebody that they split and mm-hmm. they go off and start a chain very similar and using similar recipes, those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. I think okay. that's a good point about recipes specifically is that that's the only way to really protect them as intellectual property is to keep them secret. Mm-hmm. There's no copyright protection for recipes. There's no trademark protection. It's really just... Uh, trade secrets. So yeah. that's kind of a special case. Well, and depending on the segment of our industry, I, I mean, I, I love barbecue and I know that barbecue pit masters have very specific recipes for their rubs and their sauces and they're very closely guarded because it can make the difference between, you know, winning a championship, for example, or having a great restaurant and people coming back to, you know, just having mediocre kind of barbecue, which is still good in my opinion. Right. But, yeah. Um, yeah. It's not so, winning any competition. It's not. No, it's not. <laughs> so if I were to get one of these letters, a cease and desist letter, does that mean that I'm being sued? I mean, do I have to worry about that particular instance or is it, is it mean something else? Well, it's, it's what it, it is actually an indicator that the person who sent you the letter doesn't want to go straight to court. So it's actually in a way a good sign because it means that you can probably resolve this before the expense of going to court. And it is expensive to go to court. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's almost a, an invitation to resolve this issue. Okay. Which is, which is great because I think most people would prefer to avoid court um, and no offense, lawyers in general, no. right? Because <laughs> we get it. <laughs> so um, I'm a lobbyist. I can say that we're we're on the same rung when people <laughs> talk about it. So um, so it's it's nice because it's kind of a, an olive branch, right? It's a hey, look, I'm just letting you know that this is kind of my thing. So what if I'm one of those guys who says, yeah, you know what, Pff, whatever, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to ignore this letter. Uh, what are the risks that I entail at that point? Well, um, you know, there's a couple things that could happen if you ignore a letter. Some Sometimes, it, I guess it could go away. Um, it seems like that's, if they bothered to send you a letter in the first place, that's probably not the case. You might get a second, more strongly worded letter that follows that first letter. Um, if you continue to ignore it, then they, they have already set out legal claims. Uh, they've put you on notice of their legal claims, and they could sue you at that point. And um, for a, for a lot of types of intellectual property, once you're on notice, if you continue to infringe after you know that you're infringing someone's intellectual property, the damages that they can recover at trial are significantly higher, which puts you in a much worse position. Okay. All right. Well, I think we're going to take a quick break there. And when we come back, uh, what I want to find out is what should my first steps be if I get one of these letters? Because that's going to be, I think, kind of important for us. So we'll be right back with Boiled Down. Remember your first summer job? Hopefully it didn't involve a trip to the emergency room. Young workers have a higher risk of getting hurt. If you know a teen starting their first job, SAFE wants to share these three reminders. One, 
Keep an eye out for hazards. 2. Speak up if something seems unsafe. 3. Know your rights, including restrictions on hours and the type of work you can do. You can learn more about young worker safety at saif.com slash youngworkers. All right, welcome back to Boiled Down. I'm Greg Astley, your host, Government Affairs Director for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And we are discussing everything you need to know about cease and desist letters with Alicia Bell and Carla Quisenberry of Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn. And Carla, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, They can call us at the firm, um, Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn, and you can look at the number and look at our profiles and the profiles of the other attorneys at our firm. Okay. And Alicia, is it the same for you? Just give you a call? Yeah. And you should be able to get access our email addresses also through the profiles on on line at millernash.com. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So before we went to break, uh, I mentioned that what I wanted to talk about next was what should my first steps be if I get one of these letters? Call your attorney. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first step. Um, There's a couple different options. And one option was ignore it, which we kind of talked about before the break. And the other thing you can do is to respond to it. And there's a few um, different options for responding. But I think the first step is usually to try to buy yourself some time to do a little looking and research on the party who's sending you the letter, what their legal claims are, and whether or not there's really anything to it. Is it legit, basically? Yeah, is it legit? Sometimes they haven't done all their research or you have information they didn't have, which means that there's actually not a problem and you can explain that to them. Uh, Sometimes they do have claims and you have to figure out you know, for your business, what the most effective thing is going to be. And some of that's a cost benefit analysis for, you know, how much each thing is going to cost and which one makes the most sense, how important that IP is to your business um, and, you know, how much you really want to put into trying to defend it. Sure. And in these cases, I mean, and again, I'm sorry, I'm going to generalize here, but, uh, you know, is it usually a like a settlement kind of an issue or is it is it really just a, you know, flat out? I mean, because we mentioned earlier, does it mean I'm being sued? So do you do you see a lot of cases where somebody says, look, if you give me 10,000 bucks, we don't have to go to court? Or is it usually just a look, if you stop using it, I'm fine. You know, um, you just don't. Both. Um, So sometimes, and this comes with, you know, depending on what your response is, what you're going to be able to get out of it. Sometimes from the tone of the letter that you receive, you can understand what it is they're wanting. Sometimes it's clear that what they want is to enter some sort of licensing arrangement so that you can continue to use the intellectual property, but you need to pay them something for it, Okay. uh, which can be sort of an ongoing licensing fee, plus maybe some something to cover the use, you know, the unauthorized use that you've already made. Um, In some cases, it that's they're really just looking for you to stop entirely. So interestingly, I was over in Seaside a couple weekends ago at a t-shirt shop and we were looking at some of the designs. And um, I know there's a gentleman uh, who created the Oregon, uh, the state of the Oregon with the heart in the middle of it, the green heart. And I know he doesn't license that. He's just happy if people use it and, you know, promote Oregon. We love Oregon kind of a thing. But the uh, proprietor of the t-shirt shop was saying the one he really wanted to get, but the gentleman wouldn't sell him the rights to it was 503. So the 503 area code, but it's 50 and then a tree. Oh, so right, it's, cute. it's, it's, it's cute. cute. Um, so I mean, um, is there really any recourse if if that situation comes up where you you really want to use something like that? Can can you sue somebody to use that intellectual property? Short answer: No, unless unless there's some uh, hook. Uh, For example, if it's a trademark and you don't think that trademark is valid or if you have prior use of that trademark. Mm -hmm. Um, But for something like copyright, unless you're um, 
somehow able to show that there's no creative expression in that copyright, which then why are you copying it? Um, <laughs> right. Why do you want yeah. to uh, But um, yeah, in that, in that situation, there's no real way to force someone to license you their okay. copyright or their trademark. Okay. And, and so if, if you get one of these letters, a uh, cease and desist letter, and it identifies some sort of you know, whether it's a technology or a trademark or uh, some other intellectual property as infringing, but it's something that, you know, I haven't used in a while or I was planning on phasing it out anyway. Does that make a difference? I mean, is that something you can explain or does it matter? Uh, it does matter because it, it affects what your next steps will be. So um, as Ali was saying, you know, you do that investigation of, the validity of the right that they're asserting. And then you're also going to investigate, you know, are you planning to go ahead and continue to use this mark or this copyright? How much, how much value have you received from it? Would you lose much if you just stopped using it altogether? Um, and if the answer to that is no, uh, you wouldn't lose much, then you would respond something along the lines of, okay, You've convinced me. I'm going to stop using it. I'm not admitting any fault, but I'm, I'm going to stop using it. Hopefully you can get away with just doing that. It may be that you'll have to agree to pay for some past damages for your past use. Okay. Um, but that is certainly an option if you're not interested in using it anymore. Okay. And if the letter identifies some key aspect of my business as infringing on the intellectual property, then then what? Then you have to figure out how much you want to pay to either litigate this or try to come to some sort of settlement where you're licensing the right to continue to use it. Okay. And, and how common are these letters? I mean, again, I think at the beginning we were talking about, it's, it's probably not something that a lot of our members have to deal with, but, but surprisingly, I mean, it may be something that comes up unexpectedly. So how often do you see this, this kind of an issue? Our experience is probably a little slanted yeah. because people call us <laughs> when they see them a lot. Them. We do. We see them a lot and we send them a lot. So right. we, um, I feel like they, they, I mean, they're a lot more common than in my world than people filing a lawsuit right off the bat. I yeah. feel like almost always you get some sort of letter, some sort of warning that you can respond to before you have to engage in full-scale litigation. And we probably don't hear about it because it doesn't reach the level of, say, the media attention, right? Because I'm not suing somebody. I'm simply saying, stop using this. And so exactly. if, it's, if it's quiet and it's covered that way, then you don't hear about it in the press or social media or those kinds of things. True. You do hear about some, though. I feel like companies have... Um, gotten a little clever about how they use cease and desist letters. And, uh -huh. you, and you do get some sort of funny ones that come up in the media that do hit social. I mean, I think that people are aware that they might become public. And so they try to frame it in such a way that makes them look kind of cool, even though they're sending a cease and desist letter. Sure. Uh, the one that I've been sort of loving is the um, Anheuser-Busch or InBev uh -huh. sent a cease and desist letter to a small brewery in, I think it was Wisconsin. Um, and they had, it was a sort of medieval um, ad campaign that uh -huh. Bud Light had been running using the term dilly dilly. And then some small brewery was using it for a name of one of their beers. And they had someone dress up in medieval garb and walk into their lobby and read the demand letter off of a scroll. And they got a ton of good press for that. <laughs> <laughs> so which raises the question, do people use this as a potential you know, tactic, I guess, or, or something to get that kind of press, knowing that they're going to get a cease and desist letter? Do you see that? Knowing that they're going to get cease and desist letter? Probably not. I think the sender does take into consideration 
uh, how what is the reaction to this cease and desist letter going to be? And in that case, I think Anheuser-Busch was aware of the fact that they're the monster giant sure. and they're going after this tiny little company. So let's do it in a lighthearted, humorous way where we still get the result that we want because sure. we want them to stop using Dilly Dilly. But we won't get this, the backlash of being this mean giant. Right. The giant corporation that comes in to squash the little guy. So, okay. Yeah. But the more the more typical letter is not so lighthearted <laughs> uh, and should be taken seriously. Um, but yeah, there are, there are examples like that. Interesting. So um, how would I avoid getting a cease and desist letter? I mean, uh, other than just outright stealing somebody's intellectual property, obviously. I mean... It's not always intentional. You know, I mean, I think sometimes people begin to use um, trademarks, and I think this is where it comes up a lot, without really looking around to see if anyone is already using it. Mm -hmm. So the first step is always to, when you have something you want to use, either imagery or a trademark or something in your business, to just stop and look for a little while, do a little bit of due diligence and make sure it's not already out there somewhere. And that can go a long way toward avoiding these types of fights. So what if what if I want to send a letter? I mean, what what are my first steps if I say, you know, somebody's copied my trademark, somebody is stealing my secret sauce? What do I do? Well, I think uh, you do have to evaluate: Are you willing to proceed to court? Because that's that's basically what your letter is going to threaten. Um, and if you don't, if you honestly don't think that you would ever be able to do that, um, sending the letter may not be a good idea. But uh, you could um, send the letter with the hopes that um, it would be an easy fix or send the letter and if they don't respond, then you're forced to live knowing that there is this infringer out there. Yeah. And I know some companies are, are pretty aggressive. Disney comes to mind as a, as a pretty aggressive company when it comes to their trademarked images and, and uh, they go after even even small uh, purveyors of, of um, those kinds of intellectual property infringements. Um, are there are there other examples that you guys can think of of somebody who's pretty aggressive in in pursuing? I, again, I I've seen like the Starbucks logo mm -hmm. with like a coffee and guns or something. I can't remember exactly what it says, but I don't know how aggressive Starbucks is in protecting that. I think every major uh, corporation is going to be very protective of their brand, um, and there there's um, uh, public benefit to that too. If you think you're buying Starbucks coffee, you want Starbucks coffee. Right. You don't want the knockoff version of Starbucks coffee. So there's there's public reason for for having these trademarks and protecting them. Um, but I think I think any major brand that you run into is is going to be pretty aggressive. When it comes to to marketing, because this is one of those issues too, I guess where I go back to the you know, does it depend on how much money you spend? Obviously, you get a company like Nike, mm -hmm. just do it. I mean, that's pretty, you know, okay, that's, you you know, that's Nike's thing, right? But a few years ago, there was the, the got milk campaign with the question mark, you know, it's the black and white. And then people started kind of taking that and, you know, got guacamole, got tacos. Got, I mean, so again, is that, that trademark infringement and how far can you take something like that? Um, again, I, I think an example was uh, Donald Trump, uh, now our president, but previously on on TV, who wanted to trademark "You're Fired" mm -hmm. because he used it as a part of one of his shows. But yet, it was so ubiquitous that you you really couldn't trademark it. And I guess he wasn't the first to say it. But how do you how do you deal with that situation? There's a couple answers to that, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, the first thing is for the got milk sort of got guacamole. Um, there are 
ways that you can use someone's trademark that do not infringe. Uh, one of those is what's called nominative fair use, which is if you're just using the trademark to refer to their product or their service, you mm -hmm. have to be able to explain to people what you're talking about. Okay. Um, and that's fine. And another thing is sort of a parody fair use, which I think is probably what those, you know, sure. assuming Got Milk is trademarked, what those other ones probably coast into is something where it's more of a parody. It's And that's kind of where our intellectual property rights come up against free speech, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting and kind of fluid area. Yeah. Um, and then the other question was about words that are just so commonly used that yeah. you can't even protect them. And there are some. And as I said before, we were talking about who gets the trademark. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the person who uses it first in connection with certain goods or services. So there certainly are things that are just the word people used for that thing, which you're not going to be able to use as a trademark. So you can't, you know, you can't have a trademark tacos for a taco place. Right. You can't protect that and exclude other people from using that. That doesn't make any sense. So there's, there are limits to what you can get protection for. And, and some words have become, again, so commonplace for an item that have they reached the point of, uh, I guess, uh, kind of that public consumption? So the two that come to mind for me are Kleenex mm -hmm. and Band-Aids, mm -hmm. right? Those are brand names, uh, but yet nobody says, can I please have a facial tissue so I can blow my nose? They say, pass me a Kleenex, even though that may not be the brand that you have. There's a fun word for that. It's called genericide, which is a sort of a <laughs> trademark nerd word, uh, which means something that the, you've become too successful at your branding. Right. And now people just use that as the word for the thing and you have to walk it back. So if you want to protect that brand, you have to launch an often extensive public education campaign to get people to start using it as a brand again and yeah. not as your word. And there have been those that have sort of become generic and have never come back. Aspirin is one of those. Sure. Um, but there are those that started skirting toward generic and then you know the company was able to bring it back and i think xerox is one of them. i was those. just gonna say i used to work in that industry and yeah. xerox was one that people would always say well i just need to go xerox this and you have no, to no, copy no, you have it to on copy a xerox it. machine <laughs> right yeah so that's something to be really careful about and a lot of brands are are in their advertising they're absolutely using it correctly but they sometimes have to go a little further and actually try to educate the public sure so for, uh, again, for our members, I guess, uh, the question comes down to, you know, how much time and effort are you willing to invest in something and how much harm may it do your business if somebody else has taken your name, your trademark, your idea, uh, your recipe, um, and how vigorously do you, do you want to pursue that? And um, as you've outlined, there are some steps they can take that um, are pretty um, basic and uh, pretty, uh, I don't want to say soft, but uh, as I said, kind of an olive branch to say, you know, this is a first step and if we have to go further than this... I'll decide how I want to pursue it. Mm -hmm. So um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you guys want to bring up and, and share with our listeners? I think, uh, I think Allie brought up a great point of, you know, the best way to avoid entering into any of these conflicts is to, if you're thinking about a new brand to um, really go to an attorney and have that attorney clear it. That's the best way to do it. And to pursue registration yourself for that brand. Or, you know, if you're thinking uh, anytime you find an image on the internet, likely it's copyrighted. Don't use it. <laughs> Music is going to be copyrighted. Just sure. being aware that other people have rights in the property that you think may be really cool to use, but you need to take that first step to see who owns it 
and hopefully get a license. So that actually brings up a, a great question for me, which is when you're, when you're doing your research or when you contact an attorney, is, is there some sort of a, a clearinghouse or a database for this kind of stuff? Or is it just Googling it and trying to figure out, does this image fit with somebody else's already trademarked logo? It's a little bit more sophisticated than that, and uh, so we do we do search uh, particular databases. We also do the Google search, but there's other searches that we do to supplement that. And does it matter the industry? So again, for example, if if I take the In and Out Burger logo, but I sell shoes with it, does that matter because they're two totally different industries? It, it does matter. Um, so In and Out's a really interesting example because they're actually was some litigation in Kansas for the In-N-Out logo. Okay. Uh, In-N-Out Burger sued a dry cleaner that was using In-N-Out cleaners, and the logo looked very, very similar. As you're driving down the street, you're getting hungry, and then you get there and realize it's a dry cleaner. Um, and that, I believe, did settle. They took down the sign. Um, and the, the trademark protection for a particular mark really just is for whatever the goods and services are that you're selling under that mark. So In-N-Out Burger arguably has protection for that mark in connection with burgers or restaurant services. And so other people, I guess, could use similar marks, except the more famous that mark is, the less likely other people are going to be able to use it for other sure. things because people are still going to associate it with burgers. Yeah, or, with, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. It's kind of a sliding scale. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And how far do you want to push that sliding scale? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to use it because you know people will recognize it, that's sort of the point of trademark in the first place. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. you already sort of, your intent is maybe not so pure. Yeah, which which again gets me back to, do you do it sometimes just for the attention, right? right? Knowing that you're going to get one of these letters, knowing that you're going to have to stop using it, but do you do it anyway because you know 120,000 people are going to see it on Facebook or Twitter or some other social media and then you'll be talking about it for a while. It's so. a new world. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Well, uh, Alicia, Carla, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We're going to go to our advocacy watch and uh, we'll be right back after a quick break. Did you know restaurant workers are injured at work twice as often as the rest of the service industry? Injuries include cuts and burns, slips, trips, and falls, and strains and sprains on muscles. SAFE wants to help you prevent kitchen injuries at work and at home. Be sure to use the right equipment, practice good housekeeping to reduce hazards, store and lift heavy objects properly, remind your coworkers and family to play it safe in the kitchen. For more, visit SAIF dot com slash kitchen safety. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. And with me is Lori Little, Director of Communications for Orla. So this is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. And starting on the local level, City of Portland has passed a resolution and created a work group to address the issue of single-use disposables, or SUDs. And what exactly does that include? Well, it would include your plastic straws, your plastic utensils, your plastic food containers. Uh, there's been a movement uh, nationwide, especially here on the West Coast, though, to reduce or eliminate the use of single-use disposables. Uh, Seattle has recently passed uh, a law banning those, as have a couple of uh, communities in 
the California in the state of California. Um, San Francisco is looking at one. I know Berkeley is looking at one and possibly San Diego. Uh, what it would do is reduce the number of plastic straws and plastic utensils that get into the waste stream. Um, some of the legislation is an outright ban. Some of the legislation, especially in the state of California, uh, what they're looking at statewide is just a reduction. So uh, an on-demand use of plastic utensils or single-use disposables, I guess, uh, it would mean that you would have to request those items when you go to a, a restaurant. Um, and the, again, the idea is to just try to reduce the amount of plastics that get into our waste stream that aren't uh, biodegradable. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly a cause I think, you know, that, that that's a good one. I mean, I'm already seeing at restaurants now that um, they're delivering their drinks without straws. And, and for the most part, you don't need a straw unless you're really traveling in yeah, the car. And, and even then, uh, folks are making some adjustments. Uh, you're right. There are a lot of folks around the state of Oregon that are already voluntarily uh, doing on-demand only for straws or plastic utensils. A lot of our members in the Portland area in particular have, have done that. Uh, but in addition, some of the bigger national companies are making some changes. Uh, McDonald's is going to a plant-based straw internationally that will be available, I think, in 2020 or 2021. Uh, Starbucks is also looking at some alternatives and um, have what has been um, referred to as an adult sippy cup lid. It's a lid that helps prevent splashes and spills, uh, but it eliminates the need for a straw. So a lot of folks are looking at that. I know that uh, one of the concerns about uh, an outright elimination of plastic straws is from the disabled community who feels that uh, you know metal straws can be life-threatening for someone, especially if they have a neuromuscular disorder that may cause them to have a spasm or a seizure. But also paper straws, um, they disintegrate you know over time. And um, for folks who need to drink water, constantly uh, and who need a straw, paper straws are just not really a viable alternative. So mm-hmm. um, there is a discussion about that and uh, we will continue to keep you informed. We've got three members as a part of the work group that the mayor's office has put together on the single use disposables. And so they're uh, keeping us informed and letting that work group know what the concerns are from the restaurant community. Yeah. Do you think that uh, there might be something happening on a statewide level? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the city of Portland is actually, they've convened this work group, had one meeting already, and they're hoping to have another one in August. Uh, I think by September or early October, they're hoping to have draft legislation. And probably by October or November, the city council is hoping to vote on legislation about single-use disposables in the city of Portland. But we have heard a rumor that there will be statewide legislation introduced in the 2019 session around single-use disposables. And so uh, we're trying to get ahead of that as well. And again, uh, trying to make sure that it's you know either voluntary on the part of the restaurants or uh, kind of an on-demand request for any of these, these items because um, we do recognize that it's important, especially for the disabled community, but for others as well. Mm-hmm. So staying locally, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about lodging tax. As we mentioned early in the podcast, uh, there's a great use of it with the Hoopla Tournament down in Salem this past weekend. Um, Brought people in from places uh, that came out of state, stayed overnight. Uh, We've got a lot of uh, cities and counties that are looking at increasing or enacting new lodging taxes, though, that probably are some areas that we wouldn't necessarily agree are tourism related. It's questionable for some of those areas. Yeah, very questionable. Uh, One of our examples is in the city of Ashland, who just recently passed a 1% lodging tax to pay for a long-term parking structure. 
Um, and their argument is that tourists come and park during Shakespeare or when they're coming to visit the city of Ashland. And so they want to provide a parking structure for that. Now, unless this is going to be a tourists only parking structure, uh, we don't think it's going to meet the criteria for that. So we'll be having some discussions with the city of Ashland. Um, We've had a good conversation with Benton County. Uh, Jason Brandt, our president and CEO, was down there speaking with some of our operators as well as the Benton County Fairgrounds director uh, about expanding uh, or updating, I guess, the fairgrounds down there to be more of a convention site uh, to be able to bring folks in and, and, again, have them stay overnight, put some heads in beds. Um, but, you know, turning that fairgrounds into more of a location where people can hold meetings and, and stay for longer than just a day at the fair. So I just heard that Clatsop County passed a lodging tax as well. Yeah, yeah Clatsop County is uh, hoping to pay for their jail uh, with lodging tax dollars. And their argument is about 30% of the people that visit their jail are from out of town. Now, again, I couldn't guarantee that those are visitors and not necessarily folks that are just passing through on the way of life, but uh, we think that's not going to work out for them too well as, uh, either. Um, Seaside, which has been a great partner uh, with the lodging tax and recently used a lodging tax increase to um, build out their convention center. They're in the process of doing that right now. Uh, there has been some talk from uh, city council out there, though, about paying for bridges with the lodging tax dollars, which, again, we're probably going to have to agree to disagree on that one, uh, and we'll be in discussion with them about that as well. So if you're interested in getting more involved in what's going on in our industry, in the hospitality industry, uh, we invite you to be a part of our policy committee meeting. And that those are fairly open to members, so if you are interested in all in hearing more about what's going on with the government affairs side of things um, or just, you know, have issues that you feel uh, we should be addressing, please uh, contact Greg and let him know that you're interested. Yeah, you can email me, astley, A-S-T-L-E-Y, at OregonRLA.org. Uh, but the upcoming policy committee meetings, uh, we probably are going to be talking about some of the ballot initiatives that are coming up. Uh, I know there's one in particular that we're going to be asking our policy committee to weigh in on, whether we uh, support, oppose, or stay neutral on. And that has to do with the uh, sanctuary state ballot initiative that's out there, the ballot measure that's going to be there, ballot measure 105. Um, all of our policy committee meetings involve some sort of discussion about relevant government affairs topics that can impact your business. So again, we invite you to be a part of that. Uh, come be a part of the discussion. And keep the emails coming to info at OregonRLA.org. You can let us know not only your government affairs questions, but whatever opinions you might have, and tell us what's going on in your area. You're the best source of information we have on local issues. I'd like to say thank you again to Alicia Bell and Carla Quisenberry of Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn, and to Lori Little, Orla Director of Communications, for joining me today. I am your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.